as the writer concludes this great book, he's going to give us a number of storylines that he he wraps up. He's going to give us some storylines that he brings together to complete the story, to help us understand what he's been driving at throughout the book. And so what I want us to do this morning is I want us to see four specific storylines in the book of Ruth. And I don't want you just to see these storylines so that you know something about these storylines. I want you to see that the storylines in the book of Ruth need to become your own personal storylines. In other words, you need to embed the story of your life, both individually and corporately as the people of God. We need to embed our story within the, the, the story, God's story, that is outlined here in Ruth. It's so crucial to do that. Let me quickly recap where we've been in the book of Ruth. The, the book starts out with bad news. Naomi and Elimelech are Israelites in Bethlehem. They move to Moab because of a famine. While in Moab, Elimelech dies. Malan dies. Chilean dies. Her two, uh, so Naomi, her husband, and her two sons pass away. Naomi then decides to come back to Israel. And she comes back to Israel with one of her daughter-in-law, daughter-in-law, which, uh, which was... Ruth. And Ruth makes this incredible commitment. She's a Moabite. She's a foreigner. She's a widow herself, but she commits her entire life to care for her mother-in-law who is bitter. When they come back into the city, the, the, the women of the city are sort of aghast. Is this Naomi? They haven't seen her in at least 10 years. Is this Naomi? Naomi is bitter. She she basically says, God is after me. He's judged me. I went away full. I've come back empty. Even though Ruth, the unnamed daughter-in-law, has committed her entire being to care for Naomi. Naomi can't see that. She's bitter. Her relationship with God is somewhat frayed. And now these two widows are going to try to make life work in Bethlehem. Ruth, because she's committed herself to her mother-in-law, it seems like the next day she goes out in the barley field and God directs her to the barley field owned by Boaz. Boaz was a relative of Elimelech, Naomi's deceased husband. The whole town has heard about Ruth's commitment to her mother-in-law. Even Boaz, before he even meets Ruth, has heard about the incredible (coughs) commitment of love that Ruth has made to Naomi. And in some sense, it almost feels like Boaz is captivated by Ruth's love for, for, for Naomi. And he not simply fulfills the law, which he does by allowing Ruth to glean in his field. But he goes beyond the law by including her in the meal, letting her drink from the same water cisterns as the rest of the, the workers, asking his workers to pull out extra barley along the way so that Ruth would have enough for her and her mother-in-law. And so... Ruth begins to love in a, in a very simple way in some sense, but a very dramatic way, her mother-in-law. Boaz sees this love being worked out. Ruth chapter 3, Naomi concocts this plan. Ruth is going to go in and essentially in the middle of the night at the, bar, at the threshing floor, she's going to simp- <coughs> basically confront Boaz present herself as a possible wife. Ruth actually takes this instruction of her mother-in-law and goes all the way in and basically tells the most powerful man in Bethlehem, marry me, redeem the family. 
Boaz wants to do that. He has a, another person who is a closer relative. They have to work that out. We heard that last week with Pastor Andrew. And Boaz is able to redeem and marry Ruth. The family line is saved. God has done a miraculous work of bringing together all of these different characters in a beautiful picture of redemption, which brings us to the marriage of Ruth and Boaz. Let me kind of quickly work through the text, and I'm going to get to these four storylines. Verse 13, so Boaz took Ruth, and she became his wife. He went into her, and the Lord gave her conception. She bore a son. Then the women said to Naomi, blessed be the Lord who has not left you this day without a redeemer. Now, this is a very interesting phrase. What redeemer are we talking about? Blessed be the Lord who has not left you this day without a redeemer, and may his name be renowned in Israel. Well, I think it does refer to the son, okay, whose name is Obed, which means uh, the one who serves. I think it is talking that this baby that's born into this family in some sense is a way of an expression of God's redeeming love for the family. The future is now secure. Another son has been born. The family line will continue. Yes. But I think also behind this is are the women recognizing that behind Obed, which was God's gift to Ruth and Boaz and to Naomi, God is the one ultimately orchestrating the human characters to bring redemption. In fact, God often does that in small ways. He redeems us through working through other human beings. Verse 15, he shall be to you a restorer of life and a nourisher of your old age. And then notice this, this is very powerful. For your daughter-in-law who loves you, who is more to you than seven sons has given birth to him. I'm not sure we're always struck by what this means. I I think in our culture, unfortunately, if if someone had seven sons, we would go, oh, great. Oh, seven. (laughs) But for an Israelite woman at this time, seven being the number of completeness, And having seven sons who would be there to provide and protect a mom, this would have been a glory, a fullness to any Israelite woman's home. And what they say to her, that your daughter-in-law who loves you is, is, is more to you than seven sons. What the women are saying to Naomi is that you've got a mother, you've got a daughter-in-law who is so special, who loves you and has loved you so amazingly. She is more important to you than seven cents. I mean, basically, the women of Bethlehem are giving Ruth the Nobel Prize for love. It's that powerful. It's that palpable. It's that real. Verse 16, Naomi took the child and laid him on her lap and became his nurse. And the women of the neighborhood gave him a name. It's interesting. It's the women. Now, I'm sure Ruth and Boaz were part of this, but it seems like the whole town and the women of the town are giving him a name. Saying a son has been born to Naomi. Now, the son was born to Ruth, but I think the women are recognizing that when Naomi came into Bethlehem in chapter one, she said, I was full, but now I'm empty. Her two sons had been taken from her in death. Her husband had been taken from her. But now she has this grandson, Obed, on her lap. And the women are saying, look, Naomi, God did not forget you. You were empty, but now you are full. They named him Obed. He was the father of Jesse, the father of David. 
Now let's look at the first storyline I want us to see. The first is this. God's story of redemption creates community. Okay? God's story of redemption creates community, creates community through love. I, I, I think you need to, to see here what the, what the writer does here. In chapter one, if you remember, the women were all talking about Naomi saying, is this Naomi? Is this Naomi? Naomi, if you remember, comes into town saying, God has, has judged me. I was, I was full, but now I'm empty. It's, it's almost like Naomi is, is sort of cursing her situation and, and, and blaming God for her condition. But now you see in chapter 4, the women are not talking about Naomi. They're talking about God. They're, they're, they're celebrating. They're, they're worshiping God. And instead of blaming God, there's now worship. Instead of this dour and, 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 and sort, of, um, sort of somber entrance into Bethlehem, there's massive celebration. You see also that, uh, you know, Naomi was empty, but now she's full. You, you, you see that... Um, Ruth, okay? When Ruth came into Bethlehem in chapter one, she was the unnamed daughter-in-law. I'm empty. But now Ruth is, is celebrated. She's celebrated as, as the Nobel Prize of love given to her. You, you, you know, your daughter-in-law who loves you is, is worth more to you than seven sons. High praise. You see, back in the, in, in the first chapter in Ruth, um, Naomi said, don't call me Naomi, which means pleasant. Call me, call me Mara, which means bitter. But now what are the women doing? They are naming a new baby. You also see that there, there's, there's death and there's, there, there's life. There's death in chapter one. There's life in chapter four. Now, here's what I want you to see. God's story of redemption creates community. The reality is that God's story of redemption, how we get right with God, is not simply about how I personally can get right with God through his grace. That's true, and that is amazing. But God wants to do more than just bring individuals to himself. He wants to create a community where the people of God together worship and experience this God together. That Israel in the Old Testament, we see now the church of Jesus Christ in the New Testament. We are the body of Christ designed to be a community that, that, that understands and reflects the beauty of God and the beauty of the community of God, may I say, as God exists as Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, three in one. And what is amazing about the book of Ruth is that the person, the human element, of course it's God's work, of course it's God's supernatural work to change Bethlehem in chapter one to what we see in chapter four. But what the amazing thing about it is that the person, the human element in God transforming Bethlehem is the most least likely person to create that community. It's Ruth, the widow, the Moabite, the stranger, the powerless, the poor. She is the one at the center of this celebration. Yes, they're celebrating with Naomi, but they're mentioning Ruth, who loves you. And it's precisely Ruth's love for her mother-in-law that essentially transforms the whole village, the whole town. And I think we underestimate how one person 
who lays out their life for everyone else, how one person can change an entire community. And of course, we know that when we say God's story of redemption creates community, we know that you don't have love for someone else unless you come in contact with the Hesed love of God. The loyal love of God is what, is, is what energizes the human love and the sacrificial love that needs to be demonstrated to one another. And of course, that's what's happened to Ruth. Ruth came to Israel to, to, to put herself under the shadow, under the wings of the Almighty God. She understands who this God is, and that's what propels her to love Naomi in this self-sacrificing way. It does remind me of our commitments as a church, right? We're to know God and who he is, and that is supposed to, to propel us to love one another in authentic community. You can't really love others unless you understand what God, how much God has loved you. And again, I think it's interesting with this story in Ruth, and we don't have all the timetables here, but it's probably true that Ruth proposed to, 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 to Boaz, essentially, in chapter 3, maybe two months into her stay in Bethlehem. Might have been three months. They probably got married soon after that. So now we're looking at nine months later. I mean, it may be that Ruth the Moabite, the poorest of the poor, the outsider... The widow woman with no resources and no political power, no socioeconomic power. And yet, because she is willing to pour out her life in amazing sacrificial love to her mother-in-law. We see in chapter 4, an entire town is in a very different place. And I think it forces a couple of penetrating questions for us. And that is this. I think one of our struggles in North America when it comes to community, and certainly in mid-Jersey with a very busy culture, is that I think we have a tendency to look at community as, as, more, uh, as more, more like a consumer would look rather than what a person who pours out has that love would look at it. In other words, we tend to look at community when you come to a church or you come to a small group. Are these the kind of people I want to spend a lot of time with? Are these the kind of people that can help me get to where I need to go? Are these the kind of people that I find somewhat interesting? Are these the kind of people that, 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 that I, I think would benefit me? And, and, and how are these people going to care for me? And, and what we turn, we, we sort of turn community in to a commodity and the whole thing breaks down. Sometimes I think we, 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 we turn a, a small group or a church into what, what we sort of romanticize about a relationship, uh, you know, between a, between a couple, right? I went to the small group and I just, it was love at first sight. I went to this, this church and it just, I fell in love with it. But the reality is the hard-won community of Bethlehem, which is deeply transformed, was transformed because a Moabite woman who was the powerless of the powerless, who was poorer than everyone else, who had no clout, who had no power, sort of earthly speaking, she decides to to pour her life out for one person, her mother-in-law. And that begins a chain reaction that changes the entire village. 
in a very real sense, you don't find community so much as you have to be doing community. You, you, you don't, you, 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 don't, you, don't, you don't sort of, uh, you know, uh, fall into community sort of, uh, and, and, and so people care for you. You, you. you have to, you've got to work at it. If you want to be in community, you have to do community. And to do community means you pour your life out in sacrificial love for others. Ruth does this and a community is created and deepened. And so the question for each of us would be, who do you need to love tangibly this week? Who do you need to care for? Who do you need to reach out to? How do you need to be involved in doing community rather than passively waiting for community to be done for you or to you? That's the first storyline. God's story of redemption creates community. The second storyline is this. God's story of redemption overcomes our brokenness. If you look at the end of chapter 4, it's very interesting at the end of 4, verse 18. These are some of the things you read when you're reading your Bible through in a year. And you read through these very quickly and you don't see the significance of this genealogy. But notice this. These are the generations of Perez, verse 18. Perez fathered Hezron, Hezron fathered Ram, Ram fathered Aminadab, Aminadab fathered Nashon, Nashon fathered Salmon, Salmon fathered Boaz, Boaz fathered Obed, Obed fathered Jesse, and Jesse fathered David. What the writer is doing is showing in this genealogy, he is showing how God's story of redemption overcomes the brokenness of broken people. The first name here, Perez, he didn't start with Judah, Judah could have started with Judah because uh, David was of the, the lion and, you know, was of the tribe of Judah. He starts with Perez. Well, who is Perez? Well, Perez was the illegitimate son of Judah, the patriarch of uh, that tribe of Israel, and Tamar, his daughter-in-law. This is a broken situation. This is a disaster story. This is a story that only Dr. Phil would love to talk about, right? It, it's insane. Where Judah ends up getting his daughter-in-law pregnant, not knowing that. She was dressed up as a prostitute, and then she takes some of his things, personal belongings. And then when she turns up pregnant, Judah wants to burn her and, 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 and because she's a prostitute. And then she brings out Judah's things, and, and, and now, now everybody realizes Judah's the father, and then, and, and, then, and then they get married. It's a disaster. It's brokenness at the highest level. And yet what is interesting is God doesn't seem to be embarrassed. God doesn't seem to be shook by the fact that the line of King David, who was the, 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 maybe the greatest king in Israel's history. And of course, if we know there's going to be a greater David, a greater son of David, Jesus Christ, who will come later. We'll talk about that a little bit more. God doesn't seem to be embarrassed that in the family line, the family line of his program to redeem the world through Israel at this time and ultimately through Jesus, he doesn't seem to be embarrassed that Perez is part of this. Why is that? Because God's plan of redemption overcomes our brokenness. His love and has said love is bigger than our sin, bigger than our brokenness. And of course, if you kind of 
wind your way through here. Verse 21, Salmon fathered Boaz. Salmon, well, if you go to the genealogy in Matthew, you see that Salmon was married to Rahab. If you remember, Rahab was a prostitute back in Jericho when Israel had been wandering in, in, the, in the desert for 40 years and they decided they're coming into the promised land so that they can take what God had given them this land. Jericho was one of the major cities on their way into the promised land. Spies were sent in by the, the, by, by the Israelites into Jericho. They come in contact with Rahab the prostitute. She has come to faith in God because she's heard a few news reports about how God had delivered Israel. She hides the spies. She sent them out by another way. She covers their tracks, so to speak. And she's promised that if she'll put a cord out of her uh, window of her home there on the wall, when the, when the people of Israel destroy Jericho, she will be saved. And she is. And Joshua records this and says that Rahab lived in Israel. And apparently she married Salmon, who had very well been the, the father and mother of Boaz. Now, these genealogical things that you see here, they're not always like Ancestry.com where all of the details, you know, are consecutive. But the reality is Boaz came from Salmon and Rahab, a prostitute. God is not embarrassed to deal with broken people because God's story of redemption is bigger than the sin of the broken people involved. He's not embarrassed to have the family line of his king who will lead over Israel, but also ultimately the greater son of David, Jesus Christ. God is not embarrassed. He's not thrown by this because God's plan of redemption overcomes our brokenness. That's my concern for some of us. There are some of you who think that coming to Jesus wouldn't work because you're not good enough. You've fallen into some sin. You've, you've, you've made a mess of things and, and church is just for good people and, and it's just for the righteous. It's for the people who have it all together. That's just not true. I have a number of, of friends who, who really are not in the faith yet. And they often comment, I, I would never feel comfortable in church because church is for the really good people and I haven't been really good. And that's when I throw you all under the bus. Come on and join us. None of them are good here either. God came to redeem broken people the very family line of the family of David and then the greater son of David filled with all kinds of stories of people broken in all kinds of ways. God's grace is bigger than our brokenness. I've even had believers in Jesus Christ who they look back on their life to some previous failure or maybe they've had a present situation where they really fouled up pretty, you know, pretty spectacularly. And they can't believe that the God who gave himself for them could still love them and forgive them and care for them because they have a performance orientation of God that's, all, that's different than the actual story of God's redemption that overcomes our brokenness. I remember talking to a, a couple who was getting ready to go on the mission field they were going to serve Christ overseas and talking to the wife and 
before I think she had come to Christ, she had lived a, a typical worldly life. She didn't know Christ. She lived uh, in, in, in a typical worldly way. And some of the things she got Im- involved in had consequences and she handled those in a pretty worldly way. And it, it, it just, it, it, was a, it was a massive burden on her soul that God delivered when she came to Christ. And so now it's 15 years later, I think, or so, after all of that mess, God had redeemed her. And at her final interview at the organization, it was going to be her sending organization, they asked her, is there anything in your past that would disqualify you from serving Christ overseas? And she said, everything in my life before I trust, you know, before I came to Christ, every, there's lots of things that disqualify me. But all of that was put under the shed blood of Jesus Christ. Do you believe that? Because that's what the second storyline says. God's plan of redemption overcomes our brokenness. There's a third storyline. And that is this. God's story of redemption. God's story of redemption has a glorious ending in the next life. And you may not see this so clearly, right? You see this genealogy at the end here, and it's, it's pushing forward to David. But certainly for us who read the book of Ruth, after the coming of Jesus Christ, we know that the greater son of David came through this family line. Yes, it ends with David in verse 22, but we now have more revelation. God has progressively revealed himself with more information. We know that there's a greater son of David coming from this very same family line is going to come. And we know that that Jesus who came and provided the redemption for us through his shed blood on the cross, he rose again. He also is promised to come back again. And so ultimately our redemption is not just for this life. There's a redemption that takes place in the next life through the family line of Boaz and Ruth that eventually gets to David, that eventually gets to Jesus. And I think the book is sort of pressing out through this genealogy to remind us that God's redemption and his story of redemption is not simply for this life. If, if, if all you think about is how God can redeem this life, you're going to be really disappointed because it's a broken world. And given enough time, you will be up here in a, in a casket. Someone will be doing your funeral. You'll be dead. And whatever you thought God could redeem, it won't because there's a redemption that, that, that goes beyond this world and into the next. And one of my fears is when we take our life and we expect God to redeem it only in this life, we are forgetting the grand story of redemption that is portrayed to us in Scripture. Some of you know um, Tim Keller is, is one of my favorite preachers. He's a longtime pastor at Redeemer Presbyterian in New York City. Um, I had a love-hate relationship with Tim Keller, actually. Um, I'm, I'm, I'm happy for years about this. I loved his sermons. I loved every one of his sermons. I hated him only because 
I felt like every time I preached, I just wanted to give, this was back in the day when we had CDs. I just wanted to pass out CDs to the congregation and say, that's what I was trying to say. Something like that. <laughs> he was so good. Well, right before COVID, uh, Tim Keller uh, had some um, gastroenterology issues. And when he got back to the States and they did more testing, he found he had had a pretty grim prognosis with pancreatic cancer. Some of you may have noticed his article on death was written up in the Atlantic just this past week. I want to read to you a little bit to remind you of why you've got to get your head around God's story of redemption has a glorious ending, but it's in the next life. So here's a couple of things I want to read from Tim Keller. He writes this early in the article. He says, a significant number of believers in God find their faith shaken or destroyed when they learn they will die at a time and in a way that seems unfair to them. Before my diagnosis, I had seen this in people of many faiths. One woman with cancer told me years ago, I'm not a believer anymore. That doesn't work for me. I can't believe in a personal God who would do something like that to me. Cancer killed her God. Keller goes on in the article to say that he found himself saying this. He said, I found myself saying, what? No, I can't die. That happens to other people, but not to me. And he writes, when I said these outrageous words out loud, I realized that this delusion had been the actual operating principle of my heart. goes on to quote Paul Brand, again, speaking of Americans' difficulty with death. Paul Brand, an orthopedic surgeon, spent the first part of his medical career in India and the last part of his career in the United States. And here's what Paul Brand says. In the United States, I encountered a society that seeks to avoid pain at all costs. Patients lived at a greater comfort level here in the United States than any I had previously treated, but they seemed far less equipped to handle suffering and far more traumatized by it. Keller goes on to say, as, I've, as he's had to recognize that his death could be imminent, he said, what I had to do is to meditate on the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. He says, most particularly for me, as a help in his situation, is to be reminded of Jesus' costly love, death and resurrection, and that it becomes something not simply that I believed and filed away, but a hope that sustained me every day. And so he would pray this prayer. He's been praying this prayer for the last couple of months. As I lay down and sleep and rose this morning only by your grace, keep me in the joyful, lively remembrance that whatever happens, I will someday know my final rising because Jesus Christ laid down in death for me and rose for my justification. He goes on to say that this has been a process for him since March of last year. And he said... <clears throat> He says this, he says, it is only as I have become, for lack of a better term, more heavenly minded that I can see the material world for the astonishing good divine gift that it is. 
He goes on to say, as he's meditated on the resurrection of Christ, as he's meditated on God's word, as he's meditated on God's story of redemption, that is future. He says, without any sentimentality or exaggeration, I've never been happier in my life. I've never had more days filled with comfort. And at the same time, I've never had so many days of grief. All at the same time. Stonehill Church. God's story of redemption is powerful. It can sustain you. But you have to understand that the, that the story of redemption is not only for this life. If you put your hope only in this life, or even if you put your hope in God to redeem only in this life, it will work. We're all going to die unless Jesus comes back. We're all going to face death. We're all going to have some unanswered prayers. But the hope is that because Jesus died and rose again for our sins, the hope is that this greater son of David, coming from Ruth and Boaz down through the line, it's the greater son of David died and rose again to defeat death so that one day when you die and, and your prayers to be restored will not be answered, so to speak, in this life, in the next life, you will be completely restored, completely resurrected in a new world. That must be your functional hope. As we close with those three stories of redemption, God's story of redemption creates community. God's story of redemption overcomes our brokenness. God's story of redemption has a glorious ending in the next life. Just briefly want to show you one more little nugget of this incredible writer. When the women in verse 14 say, then the women said to Naomi, blessed be the Lord who has not left you this day without a redeemer. May his name be renowned in Israel. I think they're talking about Obed, the baby, but also God behind the baby, the redeemer behind the human activity. Verse 15, he shall be to you a restorer of life. That word restore is a, comes from a Hebrew word that means to repent. Shuv, it's called. That word is used a lot in, in, in Ruth chapter 1 because Ruth, uh, I mean, Naomi has decided to return, repent, and come back to Israel, so to speak. I think there's some indication that Ruth, Naomi's desire to come back to Israel may have been the beginnings of her own repentance. Maybe Elimelech and, 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 and Naomi went away from Israel when the famine came, reflected somewhat of a faithlessness a lack of faith in God. And now she's repenting and coming back. Her repentance isn't full. It's partial. It's incomplete. She's still bitter. But what the women said to Naomi, they bless, they said, blessed be the Lord who has not left you this day without a redeemer. He shall be to you a restorer of life. He's saying that Obed and God behind Obed is a tangible expression of God returning you to him. It's a blessing that he's giving you. It's, it's a blessing to show that you thought you were empty, but really you're full. God is the one who has done this. And God is the one who has brought you and turned you back in some sense to God as he's unfolded all of these events in your life, Naomi. And 
And what's interesting about this phrase, restore of life, you'd say restore of your soul or turn you back to, 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 uh, to you know, the restore of life. In other words, turning you back to God who is the source of all life, helping you repent and, and get back to, 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 to a right relationship with God. It's just interesting to me. They're just a few generations from this climactic moment. David, who is in this same family line, will write Psalm 23. And he will talk about, the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. And he will go on to say, he restores my soul. Same word, almost exactly the same phrase. And what David, I think, is referring to, I think what this is referring to is that part of our redemptive plan of God is to is in our lifetime as we await our future redemption as we're in the process of loving other people creating community through the love has said love of God given to us as we recognize that God redeems us in spite of our brokenness and he overcomes that I think it's showing us that part of our redemption is the little ways that God helps us course correct and restores us back to himself, returns us back to God over and over and over again. And he uses other people in our life and he uses circumstances in our life. He uses all kinds of things to restore our life, to restore our soul, to bring it back to himself. We started the worship service with the song, you know, where we sang, you know, prone to wander, Lord, I feel it, prone to leave the God I love. And this God of redemption is constantly redirecting us, restoring us, drawing us back to himself. And let's let him do that good work in us. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, some of us today, we need to walk out of here and start loving someone and creating community, not be passive, to pour out the love that you've given to us and pour it out on somebody else. Some of us, Lord, need to walk out of here and recognize that while we certainly have sin and while our brokenness is profound, it is not bigger than your story of redemption. It is not bigger than your grace. And we need to believe that and receive God's grace afresh. For some of us, Lord, we, we need to broaden our horizons of God's redemptive plan and look to the future to know that that's where our glorious ending of God's redemption will take place. And we need to interpret today's issues in light of that future glory. And lastly, All of us, Lord, need to allow God to restore our souls, to restore our life, to bring us to repentance over and over and over again, to draw us back to himself, to allow your goodness and your grace and your redemptive power that you pour out on us to see it, to believe it, to rejoice in it, and allow that to restore our souls back to you. I pray this in your name. Amen.